Welcome to another edition of the Flathead Beacon Podcast. I'm your host, Micah Drew, recording from the beautiful yet very cold Flathead Valley. It's Friday, April 15th. After spending 25 years ascending the ranks with Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, biologist Jim Williams retired as the Region 1 Supervisor, overseeing all aspects of the department in northwest Montana, which stretches from the Canadian and Idaho borders across the Continental Divide and down to the Clark Fork River near Missoula. Jim has always had a career based around wildlife, working as a marine mammal trainer at SeaWorld in San Diego, California, and later as an alligator wrestler and shark tamer in Florida, before starting in on his career as a biologist studying mountain lions while at Montana State University. My colleague Tristan Scott wrote about Jim for the Flathead Beacons cover story this week, and Jim joined me on the podcast to talk about the breadth and length of his career and what he's going to be doing next, which is certainly not slowing down and truly retiring. Before we get to that conversation with Jim, though, a quick reminder that this podcast is sponsored in part by members of the Flathead Beacon Editors Club. Members support all of our journalism in all of its forms, in print, online, and here in the podcast studio. And they do so for as little as $5 per month. Plus, there's some extra perks involved, too. So to find out more or join today, visit BeaconEditorsClub.com. Jim Williams. I just retired from a long career with fish, wildlife, and parks here in Montana. And as a wildlife biologist, a wildlife program manager, and in the end, a regional supervisor for a real awesome team up here of passionate people that are out protecting wild things and wild places. That's awesome. Well, Jim, before FWP, you also had a very long, interesting career with uh, wildlife. Can you start in with a little bit of that? Yeah, it all started, you know, I was born on a little farm country of Iowa and I remember going back in a field, you know, and, you know, I was, you know, very young (laughs) and looking west thinking, you know, there's mountains out there and, and moose and lynx and wolverine and bear. And, uh, and then I saw that Disney movie, Charlie, the lonesome cougar. (laughs) And I thought, oh, those are cool. And uh, little did I know at the time. And, um, anyway, you know, through, a. uh, a series of family issues, you know, farms changed hands and divorces. And I went with my mother to San Diego. And, mm. and of course, that life is a lot easier than farm life, right? And <laughs> uh, I landed in in a kind of a longboarding community of PB La Jolla. And it was, you know, a smaller community back then and very localized. And you just kind of live on the beach. But one day I borrowed a mask and snorkel from a friend and I stuck my head underwater and just was amazed at the marine life. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, I want to be a marine biologist. So that's kind of <laughs> where it kind of really got rolling. And and I graduated from Mission Bay High School there on the water and went to San Diego State, Florida State, and marine biology degree and had some fun, you know, doing marine mammal training. It was more entertainment, though, um, you know, and, and and those oceanariums did good. You know, they're highly controversial, but mm-hmm. it takes people seeing these species to care about them. So when you say training, what was uh, some of the roles that you filled? Well, the, the first one was at a walrus pool. I was a tour guide at SeaWorld and an aquarist, <laughs> uh, you know, on the side. Um, and and there was two walruses. And my job was to do, you know, talk to the public about about literally the behaviors that the walruses were exhibiting. And, and that was highly entertaining because they're huge animals and they're intelligent and, and they have their quirky personalities. But uh, then I, uh, when I graduated from Florida State with a marine bio background, 
I ended up uh, at a place called Ocean World, and they knew I'd worked at SeaWorld, and and it was essentially training dolphins and sea lions for entertainment. But again, mm-hmm. you know, I always say it, entertainment's really inspiration, and inspiration inspires conservation, right? In many ways. Now, the, my career here in Montana has been very applied hands on the ground, but for most of the world, it's what they see at a marine park or what they see on TV. And now what they see online or on their iPhone, mm-hmm. they have to be inspired to care. And, and if people don't care, we're all in trouble. So, you know, there's, there's a balance with animals in captivity, zoos and oceanariums. They inspire people to act and protect, but there's clearly the you know, the captivity issues and, and no one's really right and wrong. It boils down to, you know, what's your personal value set. So, uh, but I did that for a while and, and I know I'll never forget watching, uh, one of the first TV shows on cable showed the grizzly bears that the Craighead brothers are working on Yellowstone mm-hmm. and one of them charging a car half drugged and I was like, wow, I want to do that now. And so I, back then it was the card catalog, not Google. And I found, uh, you know, a professor that worked on bears and his name was Dr. Harold Picton in Bozeman. And I gave him a call and I said, Hey, I want to, I want to go to grad school in Montana. And he go, Hey, real long pregnant pause. And he says, where are you calling from? Mr. <laughs> Williams. And I said, Fort Lauderdale, what do you do? And I said, Oh, I'm a dolphin trainer. And he goes, do you know what snows in Montana? And I was like, okay, he's a wiseacre. But anyway, he said, you don't have a chance in, in heck unless you, you know, were here and had relationships. So I loaded everything I owned, hung a pair of shark jaws on the mirror of the old Jeep and drove out to Montana and walked in his office and he about fell off his chair. <laughs> and that started the graduate school process where I ended up working on mountain lions. You mentioned mountain lions as being one of those very early glimpses mm-hmm. um, into the world of, of wildlife in the West. And obviously, you spend a lot of your career there. What is it about them that uh, interests you? And talk a little bit about some of that early fieldwork days. Well, it's a connection to people, really. So the initially, you know, was the graduate research was more natural history stuff mm-hmm. in the bob and on the front. And then at the Beartooth, had another project. Terry Inc. Uh, got his PhD. I set that project up and worked with him. It's in the Gates of the Mountains area, and that was pretty cool. And a handful of others I was fortunate enough to be involved with. But I realized really quickly that a mountain lion and the issues and the fear about him were a surrogate for um, human coexistence. Mm. And that's where it was at. You know, the science is fun, and you get to the discovery mode. But to move the needle for acceptance, coexistence, you know, tolerance isn't necessarily a great word, but it's coexisting because everyone has issues if it's livestock or it's a neighborhood, but the, the coexistence um, realm with people um, is where I landed. And when I moved back, when, oh, so my first job was a wildlife biologist for fish, wildlife and parks in great falls, had all the species, did all the flights, elk, antelope, deer, Mm -hmm. worked with ranches, you know, large, wonderful ranch families and um, had a great time. But when I, when I came left the field initially to become the wildlife program manager here in 1999, um, Eric, that's when Eric Wenham, I got to work with him again. Eric and I went to grad school together and the story about lions in Northwest Montana really is about Eric Wenham. He's a badass. <laughs> he did his graduate work living with grizzly bears on the top of the Swan divide in the jewel basin area and South at night following bears and their activity patterns. So he's fearless, right? And so I knew Eric was working here on cats. And when I got over to become the wildlife manager, he was kind of on contract with the enforcement. And Eric's job was to respond to these lion conflicts. And we knew that, you know, for people to tolerate something like a grizzly bear or a black bear or lion, they need to feel safe. Mm-hmm. And in order to feel safe, they have to be able to make a call and have someone respond to a conflict. 
And in order to do that, you have to have somebody. And that was Eric. He was the first one. And, and so I profiled him in a book I wrote, um, Path of the Poom. I have a whole chapter on Eric and, and uh, Tristan wrote about it in the story. And, <laughs> um, Eric was the lead guy and still is today. He hasn't retired yet for lion conflicts and he's the best. And, um, you know, the winner of 1996, Tristan wrote a little bit. <laughs> I profiled him in my book on that winter where there was a lot of cats and a big winter and we ended up having to remove a, a lot. But, and frankly, he, he, you know, we did a press release before I retired on wild horse Island. We just mm-hmm. removed three cats working closely with the confederated Salish Kootenai tribes. Eric was the lead on that, you know, you know, circle or fast forward 30 years. Eric's still doing it. And that's always, it's not a lot of fun. That's not why we go into the field to put a bear down or a lion down, but it has to be done to maintain tolerance and populations of lions are fine. And so Eric's been at it for a long time and uh, using hound men, um, hound women, hound handlers, I refer to them, you know, uh, often uh, they're very passionate, very willing to volunteer to, you know, deal with the cats as they, the issues arise. Fortunately up here, really it's pretty rare until we have some events that all kind of coincide mm-hmm. a loss of prey, a bad winter. And then there's a bunch of juvenile cats running around, but Eric's got that dialed in. <laughs> um, and he's mentoring some future people too. So yeah, that it, it's, it's been a privilege to work with these really talented biologists that are frankly, um, cutting edge and creating the model for the planet. And Eric Wenham was one of those. And, and, and I'm glad, Tristan wrote that up in there. So it's been a privilege to work with, you know, Tim Manley was another mm-hmm. in the grizzly bear side of things. Um, Kent Loudon. And now it's Wendy Cole. It was Diane Boyd and Kent Loudon. And now it's Wendy Cole for wolves. And uh, you know, this Northwest Montana has some really um, exceptional um, biologists that are really creating the model for the rest of the country and internationally. And so we're lucky here because it's a great place to live and these species are still here. Yeah. Well, since you came on with FWP in 1999, or um, 92, 92, sorry. Yeah. But I became, I moved back here in 99 as the, as the boss right. for, for the wildlife program manager. So, so in your time here since yep. 99, obviously there's been huge growth, uh, huge population growth in the Valley, which just brings a lot more conflict between the, the wildlife human corridors. Can you talk a little bit about watching that happen and, and how yeah. that's kind of evolved? Yeah. So growth is a big deal. Um, one of the things my team realized, you know, when I worked at FWP, Alan Wood was kind of my right hand person. Mm-hmm. We worked alongside and co ran the region. He was the mitigation supervisor and Gail Bissell, who's retired now. And then Chris Temple replaced her. They were the dream team of conservation biologists to protect land and provide access for everyone up here. But what we did not know back then when we started working on on conservation easements with the former Plum Creek lands mm-hmm. in particular, that um, number one, the growth would explode like it has during COVID. So Micah, there's three migrations in my mind that happened all at once that initially it was the COVID migrants, COVID refugees, mm-hmm. you know, where, where we live here, where we're distributed laterally on the landscape, everywhere on the planet that was distributed vertically, New York places, you know, in Europe and around the world, where human density was very high, got hit hard by COVID. And, you know, and we were literally, people could still ski and hike and play outside here when people were um, dying, you know, in mass in 
I, I remember in Italy and then it moved to mm-hmm. New York. Yeah, I almost felt guilty living here, but we're very lucky. Well, the rest of the world figured that out. Every little mountain town mm-hmm. got slammed with COVID refugees and with these folks that uh, these new migrants came with money and they wanted to buy land or homes. So that's one. The other um, migration that occurred at the same time for two, almost three years in a row, California, the inland, a Napa area, inland Oregon and Washington um, lit up on fire. And so with climate change, you know, there's some been some real droughts in, in, in the West. Mm-hmm. Well, those areas, you know, there was a lot of well-to-do folks that um, were, I call them climate migrants. You know, they landed on top of the COVID refugees. Then the riots started in the urban areas all around the country. Um, and, and those, you know, it's often I see it referred to as white flight. We, typically white families with money were able to and wanted to pick up and move to somewhere rural. Uh, the fear of those urban tensions. And so we had climate migrants. We had COVID migrants. And we had kind of white flight migrants all at the same time land up here. And it the, the it's tangible. You can feel the growth. And that has been in the last two years in particular. So the reason I'm going through all this is fat, uh, roll the clock back where Alan Wood and Gail Bissell and Chris Temple at the time working with the Trust for Public Land, Dick Dolan, mm-hmm. an amazing team in the Forest Legacy Program, Plum Creek initially, then Weyerhaeuser, then Southern Pine Plantation, and now Green Diamond, Stoltz, all along, um, stems and lumber, we have fortunately protected those lands from subdivision and provided public access that frankly would have probably disappeared. There was enough money that moved here. A lot of these lands would have been bought up and shut down Mm. in my mind. Who would have thought that that um, concern over what you um, asked, urban conflict and subdivisions, would have ended up spurring a program that essentially saved our public access up here in the lands between, you know, north of here on the Whitefish Range and between here in Libya and all the former mm-hmm. uh, Plum Creek lands. Um, that, you know, th- I had the dream team. And, you know, the dream team was in place at the right time and had the right skills to pull that off. Now we're finishing some of those up. Our Fish, Wildlife, and Parks and Trust for Public Lands and and who I work with now, Heart of the Rockies. You know, there's a lot of land trusts, Flathead Land Trust. They're all involved. But, uh, um, no, how how fortunate we were to have had a program in place and the right people to protect that access or we would have lost it. And, and that translates into bear conflicts, lion conflicts, elk and deer conflicts, uh, losing your angling and your, your fly fishing area, your, your, your um, deer and elk hunting area. You know, I mean, we've a lot, we could have lost it all. Well, before we go into what you're doing now in your retirement, just looking back at your, your whole career, a lot of time in leadership, a lot of time in research, but just a lot of time in this field. What are some of the big things that stand out? Away, at least in my career, is people and local communities. Mm. Without buy-in, locally and rural, local and rural buy-in, conservation is not going to be durable. I don't care what the program is, fish, wildlife, um, and, and within fish or what, bull trout, cutthroat trout, Elk, deer, think about wolves. <laughs> I mean, bears Bears are kind of always make the news, but there's a lot of other species we work with, moose, mule deer, you name it. Without local and rural buy-in, um, conservation isn't durable. So we've learned that in order to deliver, you know, fish or wildlife conservation and frankly, recreation programs, we need to really engage local communities mm. actually in, in the beginning. And that includes tribal communities too. One of the most 
uh, enjoyable parts of my career has been the relationships that uh, I've developed and learned from tribal partners, particularly the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes. You know, pretty much everything up here we're we're sitting and standing on their Aboriginal lands, and so there's been kind of a reckoning and a a reawakening of of that um, presence, and and it's pretty exciting. But you know. Tom McDonald, uh, who's the tribal chairman now, was a mentor for me. Del Becker, uh, Rich Jansen, and now Whisper Camel Means and and Carrie Aeneas. There's you know Stacy Corville when he was alive. The Bear Specialist. You know my my team and their team. We were seamless, mm-hmm. and uh, and that includes fisheries too. There were some hiccups you know years ago uh, that took a little you know relationship building, and and uh, I'm real proud that you know the tribal programs. And the state programs were seamless, you know, when I retired and in the future, all the, all the staff, all the biologists, uh, they all have similar goals and, and respect for each other's programs. And that's pretty cool. So the tribal relationships are one of the most, you know, rewarding parts of a job, really, at least to me. And, and those relationships will continue as well. Another part of the job I really enjoyed was, you know, the, ability to see Montana in its entirety Mm -hmm. as a wildlife program manager. I did that for years. Um, we had wildlife program manager meetings in Glasgow in Miles city in Billings in Lewistown in remote places like wall Creek game range. Montana is a big state. It's like three or four States back East wrapped into one. Mm -hmm. It's super diverse in terms of the species assemblage, particularly wildlife well, fisheries as well and being able to travel around and just see the landscape i never got tired of even driving and uh, some of the winter drives i'm not going to miss <laughs> that i remember following snow plows in the dark down the swan mm-hmm. and you know through a- ovando and avon just white knuckling it through the the storm in the dark to get to a commission meeting in helena i, I had to be there at eight and i didn't want to spend the night so i get up early it was the dumbest thing in the world but you know, I don't have to do that anymore. I won't miss. But Montana's big and wild, and it still is. And and I really enjoyed meeting you know people in the communities, my fellow employees and partners. Um, partnerships were another real fun part. So Glacier National Park is one of the most high profile parks in the United States. And our team and Glacier's team, you know, working with John Waller, he's their carnivore lead. John and I were roommates in grad school. I lived in their basement in Bozeman. So, you know, it was a relationship from the get-go. And then working with Jeff Mao, who's retired now, and, and a whole, uh, Mark Beal, and some really talented employees in Glacier Park. You know, we, we jointly monitored, you know, fish and wildlife species, you know, wolves, loons. A grizzly bear, frankly, when Tim Manley handled, handled a grizzly bear in whitefish, it would often den in Glacier National Park or the Bob Marshall or vice versa. So animals don't recognize those polit- political boundaries. So the partnerships are really important with other agencies like Glacier Park and DNRC and the Forest Service. And I really enjoyed those, those relationships. I guess in a nutshell, you know, mm-hmm. I, I was trained in biology, you know, in grad school as well. But I think, you know, looking back, What's most valuable to me are the people that I worked with and learned from. They helped me. Uh, they tolerated me. <laughs> I kind of have an overcaffeinated personality, but I've, you know, the people in the end, the people are more important and those relationships more valuable, frankly, than even the privilege of getting to handle the, the wildlife species that I did. Well, lastly, you've officially been retired for a, a week now, uh, but you have not slowed mm. slowed down. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing now and what you plan to do down the line. 
So I'm super excited, you know, after, uh, you know, 30 years zip by really quick and I'm way too young to retire, <laughs> but, uh, Gary Burnett, who actually he got his startup here working on Pine Martin research in Glacier Park. That was his graduate thesis nice. through university of Montana. Um, and then Gary went on to, you know, be, you know, the leader of the Blackfoot challenge, you know, in the Blackfoot Valley, all those working with ranchers cooperatively at their level, meeting them, at, you know, on the ground at their places and working through whether it's conservation easements or carnivore conflict reduction. He was Mr. Blackfoot challenge. And then he assumed the lead role at the heart of the Rockies initiative which is a really cool group, really kind of cutting edge, innovative, creative. They support 27 land trusts mm. from the Jackson Hole to Sun Valley area, north all the way into Southern Alberta and Southern BC. And of course, Flathead Land Trust, you know, and, and Trust for Public Land. I've worked with those two a lot and, and, and others. Um, Gary found me and we talked a little bit and and he realized I was looking for a change and I have way too much energy. And, and so the team was, um, you know, kind enough to bring me on. And so now I'm part of a relatively small team at the heart of the Rockies initiative where I'll be able to work with, uh, all of these land trusts on a whole host of programs. And frankly, you know, my title is called partnerships, uh, manager, which is, you know, that's all I've done in my career, but, you know, I'll do anything they want me to do. I'm, I'm looking forward to learning about, they have a sagebrush program, the high divide mm -hmm. collaborative. They're doing work with carnivore um, conflict reduction with wildlife services and the Western mm -hmm. landowner Alliance. And, and what's cool about this group is they meet property owners, ranchers at their level and, and, and are looking for innovative and creative solutions to problems they face to be able to stay on the land. We're all going to benefit if these ranches stay for ranches. And you think about it, especially with the migration we talked about earlier, you know, everyone wants to play Kevin Costner and mm -hmm. John Dutton and Yellowstone and buy their little amenity ranch. Well, that makes it hard to pass a ranch on to your son or your daughter because all these inflated values. So one of the tools, you know, and a property right is conservation um, planning. And so I'm excited about that with Heart of the Rockies. I'm also real excited. They're trying very consciously to bring tribes back into the fold with conservations, even on private land. Where are the opportunities where the First Nations that were there originally can work with some of these private partners? And, you know, it's baby steps initially, but there's a lot of potential you think about. And it, it involves access, whether it's traditional gathering of herbs by elders. And I mean, I can think of a whole bunch of programs or access um, on some of these timberlands with their Aboriginal rights um, just to, to enjoy these as well as just being able to access it from the easement. So heart of the Rockies is working with first nations, their justice equity, kind of inclusion focus. They're working with ranchers to meet them at their level and supporting all of these land trusts. So I'm super excited to jump in and, and be part of their team. So that's what I'm going to be doing now. Um, I'm going to continue a few things on my own time. Um, my first degree was marine biology. I help uh, beneath the waves, uh, Dr. Austin Gallagher, and he's a shark researcher. And that was one of my interests initially. And he's got study areas in the Turks and Caicos, the Bahamas. I was just there two weeks ago helping radio tag tiger sharks, a big male and a big female. And I got to process with his team, a Caribbean reef shark and a couple of nurse sharks. But he's doing the same thing we do with carnivores here. He's tracking them. Mm -hmm. And he's followed one male tiger shark from the Bahamas to Martha's Vineyard up in the Boston wow. area and back to the same coral reef complex. He caught it. So real similarities, but you know, I've been helped. I'm going to continue kind of, you know, being an advisor and, and part of their team on my own time separate. So I got, <laughs> I have way too much energy to retire. So I'm looking forward to the next chapter. Um, 
But again, miss the hunting clubs, the angling clubs, the birding clubs, the tribes, the other agency partners, all of the people. Um, that's what made my career valuable. Well, Jim, thank you so much for coming and sharing a bit more of the story. It's a, it's a great read for people who haven't uh, picked up the paper yet, but we really appreciate you taking the time today. Yes. And, and everyone out there, you know, keep wild things in wild places <laughs> and keep them connected. Thanks to Jim for joining me in the podcast studio today. And if you have not yet, go pick up a copy of this week's Flathead Beacon, where the cover story, The Spaces Between, written by Tristan Scott, is all about Jim Williams' tenure as a biologist in Northwest Montana. And now, here are some stories from the last week, as of 7 p.m., Thursday, April 14th. School elections are coming up, and with the Kalispell Public Schools, the board is asking for voters to approve a $1.5 million general fund levy for the high school district. A high school levy has not passed since 2007, despite the district adding nearly 500 students since then. The levy funds would support academic programs and activities, technology, curriculum, and the rising costs of general operations, including salaries, benefits, utilities, and insurance. If the levy passes, taxes on a $300,000 tax-assessed home will increase by $3.15 per month, and on a $400,000 home, by $4.20 per month. Kalispell Public Schools Superintendent Micah Hill said that over the last 15 years, the district has had to cut tutors and hall monitors and keep vacant teaching and paraprofessional positions open due to lack of funding. Down in Lakeside, Blacktail Mountain Ski Area announced that due to the recent spate of winter weather, they will run their lifts this Saturday for just $25 for anyone holding a season pass to a Montana resort. Blacktail said in a press release that as long as there is enough snow, they hope to have limited operations each weekend for the rest of April. For the third time in four years, Flathead High School has hired a new head football coach. Caleb Allen, who spent last year as the quarterback's coach for the Braves, will take over for Alex Cummings, who had the position for one year. In the last three seasons, the Braves have gone 2-24 and with back-to-back winless seasons. In other sporting news, it was announced this week that Big Fork High School will be reclassified to an A school starting in the 2023-2024 school year. Big Fork moved down to Class B in 2009, but has grown enough to jump up the ranks. The Vikings and Valkyries will compete in the Northwest Conference for most sports, putting them into rival spots against nearby Columbia Falls and Whitefish. Over in Glacier National Park, officials announced that construction along Going to the Sun Road will take place beginning June 1st and continuing throughout the summer. The long-awaited utilities project will replace seven miles of Sewer Force Main electrical and telephone lines between Apgar and Lake McDonald Lodge. No vehicles will be able to use the road from the west entrance prior to 6 a.m. or after 10 p.m., but access to Logan Pass via that main artery through Glacier will be possible through the St. Mary entrance on the eastern side of the park. And finally, for any fans of running, this coming Monday is basically a national holiday as the Boston Marathon will be run for the 126th time, and it returns to its usual Patriots Day timing. Several local Flathead Valley runners will be competing, including Pete and Jenny Hybor, a Kalispell couple I featured in the Flathead Beacon this week. Jenny has spent 18 years thinking about and training to qualify for Boston, 
while Pete has recently been juggling his job as a physician along with his family life and lots and lots of dark morning runs in order to prepare for his second time running Boston. In addition, Whitefish physical therapist Caitlin McNamara will also be running, as will former Flathead Valley resident Matthew Luke Meyer. Uh, I also have a former roommate who is aiming for a podium finish, so I will be getting very little work done in the office on Monday morning as I'm following along with everybody's races. There's a good chance I will be tweeting all my thoughts about it too, so if you're on Twitter, definitely follow me. That's all I've got for you today, though. As always, you can stay up to date on the latest local news online at flatheadbeacon.com. This episode was hosted, edited, mixed, and produced by me, Micah Drew, and again, a huge thanks to the guest, Jim Williams. Great story. He's written a great book, and you can read all about it in the cover story of the Flathead Beacon. Music in this episode included songs by local Flathead Valley artist Mike Murray, who's kind enough to let me use them. That's the show for this week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>